This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Radio Show. I was with you a couple days ago, just thrilled to be back here on familiar turf. Buck Sexton is a patriot. Buck Sexton is a hero. It's terrific to be here. A lot going on in the news today. Seems that it's amazing how upset the left and Democrats get whenever there are measures or there are efforts to try to save lives of unborn children. It's amazing how upset the left gets, how much they rage, how much vitriol there is when conservatives and Republicans do whatever they can to protect the unborn. And I want to go slowly but deliberately about this abortion issue. So I get a lot of questions about it, and I think there's a lot of confusion around this topic. First and foremost, we have to decide when life begins. We have a universal, medically adopted, medically agreed upon consensus of when life ends. We can say we issue a death certificate of when a life is over. However, we do not have that same sort of consensus of when life begins. In fact, there is no agreement. There is no sort of determination, for lack of a better term, of when that life begins. And so typically, those of us that are pro-life believe that life begins when the sperm and the egg meet. This is commonly called conception. That is when there is the, the unique and magical blend of two different beings' capacity to reproduce. Something happens there that will never happen again. More specifically, there is a DNA, there is a mixture that is so unique that the termination of that, rather intentional, such as abortion or birth control, or unintentional, such as a miscarriage, will make that unique being disappear forever. And so that's where we start from, those of us that are pro-life. We start from the scientific, that's right, I'm using that word scientific, the scientific fact that life begins. And so the first question that I always have when I'm debating people that are pro-choice is they call the being, I think that's what I'm going to call it just as a neutral term to describe this, they call the being in the womb a fetus. They say it's a fetus. They say it's a fetus. They say it's a fetus. So my first question always is, is the fetus alive or not? And of course they say, yeah, the fetus is alive. Okay, so then discontinuing the fetus would be making something not alive. What do we call that? And they get silent. Well, usually we would call that being dead. 
in order to make something dead, you have to end a life. I say, oh, no, no, that's demagoguery. You're playing linguistical terms. I said, oh, okay, fine. What species is the fetus? What species is the fetus? Because Whoopi Goldberg had this whole deal the other day where I think she said it's not a human in the womb. She said something along those lines. I hear this a lot and I think about it. Wow. The, those people that really believe in evolution have accelerated their viewpoint. Are you trying to tell me that there's a species change that happens within the womb? That actually there's something pre-human about being a fetus? That there's something pre-human? I, I just said that twice. I'm trying to think of a better way to say it. But there's something before being a human being about being a fetus. And, the, and, and of course, the answer, of course, there isn't. Because the, the essence of what an abortion does is it ends a human life that is a human being at the moment of conception. And so those of us that, came, that, that care about the rights and the protections of all people, we care that as soon as the sperm and the egg meet and conception happens, that there should be some form of protection for that being. And we understand that if we live in a very mixed society and that you have to have conversations and you have one form of the American political discourse that I'm on that believes abortion is abhorrent and horrific and should be reduced at all measures possible. And then you have another side that thinks it's nothing more than cosmetic surgery. It's no big deal. That it's just something that needs to be disposed of. And when you have that kind of polar opposites, you have to understand that, well, maybe we should begin by having no late-term abortion. How about that? No abortion for, how about, let's even start even beyond that. Let's not have abortion for people that survive abortions. And the Democrats can't even agree to that. They cannot even agree to the fact that we should not have protections for children or for babies that survive abortions. And so, there was, there is a law that was just passed in Alabama that restricts abortion that, quite frankly, is designed to make this go all the way up to the Supreme Court. That is designed to challenge Roe versus Wade. And the hysteria on the left is predictable. And I want to be very clear, this is not going after people that have had abortions, this is going after abortion doctors. And if you have not seen the procedure of an abortion, you've not actually seen the inhumanity that happens, the crushing of the skull. I'm going to be as as far, for, far away from graphic as I can because I don't want to get into that, but you should go see it for yourself. And my friend Lila Rose at Live Action is very good at this, and she talks about it quite often. Her, her videos are just terrific. And so this issue of abortion for those of us that are pro-life we come at it from a, from a position that every life matters, that every life deserves protection. But isn't it always the left that is saying that they want to protect children? Isn't it always the left that says, we need to protect the rights of the unborn? Isn't it always the left that says, no, they're not the unborn, they're the left, they always say that we need to protect the rights of those that can't protect themselves. The vulnerable is what I'm saying. That they always say that we should protect the rights of the vulnerable. Well, what could be more vulnerable than someone who is in a... a person that is in the womb with no ability to defend themselves. Here's an interesting question. 
A woman says, it's my body, my choice. We as conservatives believe that there's two bodies. Therefore, you don't have a choice to end that life. Let me give you a great example. I'll give you three examples really quick. Number one, you ever notice how when you go up to a pregnant woman that you might know, you say, hey, how's your baby? You don't say, how's your body? Isn't that interesting? You don't say, hey, when's your body due? You say, how's your baby? Because you recognize there's something else within that woman. We've already believed this as a culture and a society. You ever hear a woman who's pregnant say, boy, my baby was kicking last night or I'm eating for two now. You ever hear a pregnant woman say that I'm eating for two? Or, uh, you know, I can't wait to meet my child. There's, a, there's already built into our culture that there's another being within you. That, that there, you don't have the jurisdiction over that being just because you're the temporary host. That's a, that's a separate human life. It's the first thing. In many states, this is still the case. New York has just repealed this, which is just unbelievable. But in most states, if you kill a pregnant woman, it counts as double homicide. If the horrific thing that happens when you actually kill a pregnant woman, it counts as a double homicide. Because that counts as two, as two lives. And do you ever notice that when women, what do, what do we call, I'm here with my, the producer here of the Charlie Kirk Show, executive producer, and Andrew, and of the Charlie Kirk Show on Apple Podcasts. You can download, go to Apple Podcasts, type in Charlie Kirk Show, press subscribe. Andrew, what do we call it when a pregnant woman has a celebration for their pregnancy? That would be a reveal? Or a something shower. Oh, a baby shower. We don't call it a fetus shower. That is correct. Oh, okay. And so when you call something a baby shower, now here's what's so amazing. Something, life should not be determinable on, object, on subjectivity. It should be objectivity. So a woman could have a baby shower and be celebrated for her upcoming baby and have a gender reveal. I want you to think about this really carefully. People could celebrate it. People could have either pink or red, whatever they do, right? The different pink colors. Or blue. Pink or blue. Those are the kind of the typical ones, right? Pink or blue based on the gender reveal. And then the woman who is pregnant, based on our laws, could drive right after her baby shower and then go have an abortion. Think about that. Does it make it less of a life or more of a life just based on her decision? Everyone's treating as, it, as, it, if, as, as, it, as if it is a child at that baby shower, right? They want to take a picture with you know, the, 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 the expecting mom. She's talking about the nursery or she's talking about the school that the kid might go to. And then right after that, she can go have an abortion. That, does that all of a sudden make, that, make it seem as if that life didn't exist? And this is so interesting because we as conservatives believe we should have objective views on when life starts and when life ends. What could be more important than that? I think that I think you're hitting on a really important topic here because every other litmus test is subjective, right? If we're going to judge life on when it can sustain itself, it's like, well, you know, uh, you know, my uh, 14-month-old uh, can't sustain itself. Does that mean she's not a life? I mean, every other measure is subjective, without a doubt. And so they say, well, the I want an abortion because I didn't want the child. Whoa. You think we should just dismiss children that aren't wanted in our society? First of all, there are millions of people waiting for adoption right now in America. Millions of people. And the adoption laws are so screwed up. They're so screwed up. But you really think we should become a society 
that judges life based on how much we want that child? Think about that. I don't want the kid. Really? It's called taking responsibility for your life, isn't it? And they say, well, you know, the child can't think for itself. Well, neither can a six-month-year-old. Six-month-year-old couldn't sustain itself. Six-month-old. Six-month-old. Not a six-month-year-old. Six-month-old, you're right. Couldn't sustain itself. So you put all these things together. And this is why those of us that are pro-life are so passionate about this topic. I do want to nuance this point is that I'm in no way against or criticizing or trying to demonize or women that have had abortions at all. I understand that could be a very personal and very difficult decision. I know people that have gone through that decision. I don't think less of those people at all. I really don't. I, I, where, my criticism is towards abortion doctors because they know exactly what's going on. They see the ultrasounds. They actually do the procedure, and they and their nurses uh, actually help engage in those side of processes. And so I think far too often the pro-life movement becomes one that becomes highly critical of women that have actually had abortions. So coming up, we're going to keep talking about this Alabama abortion law, some of my predictions surrounding that. This is Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA, tpusa.com, filling in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton radio show. You can subscribe to my podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, press subscribe, Charlie Kirk Show. We will be right back. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton radio show. I am the founder and executive director of Turning Point USA, the nation's largest student movement dedicated to educating, empowering, and organizing students around the values of free markets and limited government, tpusa.com. I'm also the host of the Charlie Kirk Show. You can go to Apple Podcasts, type in Charlie Kirk Show, and press subscribe. I'm kind of flipping through Twitter here, and I'm kind of seeing some of the reaction and kind of seeing some of the misrepresentations around abortion. I've asked producer Andrew to read off some of them, and we can kind of comment on some. What do you got? Well, yeah, I mean, right now, abortion, hashtag abortion is a woman's right, is trending number two on Twitter. And you've got uh, lots of celebrities chiming in. You've got, you know, Liam uh, from One Direction. And, I mean, some of the listeners might not be uh, as familiar with somebody like Liam, but, you know, suffice to say he holds a lot of sway with younger audience. Uh, very, very internationally famous uh, pop star says, uh, "I don't normally, I don't usually comment on politics." I, but I this love one that, got by me. the way. I love it. It's always I don't normally comment on. It. Okay, yeah. you mean you only comment every week when you disagree with Trump? Go ahead. I don't usually comment on politics, but this one got me and is so important. And he quotes, "This whole abortion law thing in America is a mess. I mean, you're completely taking away." By the way, he misspells "your," which is a, a pet peeve. Should be "u" apostrophe "r e." completely taking away the rights of women and the ownership of the bodies, bodies, plural, that belong to them. I, I mean, and so, r- read that last part again. This is Your a com- tweet? This is more, this, yes, is, this yeah, is more yeah. than 270 characters. Oh, yeah, he did a screen grab of his. Let me uh, see. Yeah. Let me see this. Completely. Oh, he's got a whole thing here. It's bad enough that women have to go through cycles of periods that can be painful without making some of them have to go through with unwanted pregnancies that will literally change the course of lives. This guy should not be an author, by the way, or a columnist anytime soon. It's like a flow of consciousness. Abortion up to a certain point. Ooh, abortion up to a certain point. Hold on. Should be legal. Always be legal. It's only right that women are given that choice to make for themselves. Well, hold on. First of all, his position's in direct defiance of the Democrat primary and the Democrat party because they actually don't believe. They believe in abortion, unlimited abortion on demand always. And here's what always bothers me is that it, the, the woman is 
the host of another being. The woman is the host of a child within her. And so what gives her the full jurisdiction to decide the future and the fate of that child? Based on, and I do believe there should be exceptions. I, actually, I do believe there are certain exceptions. I'm actually in the minority in some of the conservative movement. I think that rape, incest, life of the mother, and health of the mother should be reasonable exceptions. But just so you know, that's less than 2% of all abortions. So Alyssa Milano goes on CNN and she says, well, some women have unwanted pregnancies because a crime gets committed to them. And she's talking about incest and rape. And she says Republicans want to take that away. First of all, the majority opinion of Republicans out there is no, those exceptions are perfectly fine. Some conservatives think there should be no exception for rape. Um, and I respect that opinion. I just disagree with it. I think if an act of if a crime was done to you that resulted in a pregnancy, you should not be you should not be forced to have to continue to have that child. That's my if an act of force was done against you. Um, and same same can be said with incest, which is a crime against the woman. But again, that's the percentage. That's a small percentage. It's less than two percent of all abortions actually pertain to it. What do you got, Andrew? You got some more hashtag abortion is a woman's right. Well, you've got. Uh Kirsten Gillibrand chiming in as well. Uh, this is about Alabama. Just passed a near total ban on abortion. No exceptions for rape or incest. Doctors could face 99 years in prison for providing abortion. This is a war on women, and it is time to fight like hell. Well, what about the what about the young babies that are aborted that are women? Isn't that a war on women if you're aborting women children? If you're aborting women babies, isn't that making there less women in the world? I want more people. I want more people in the world generally and altogether. So this is being labeled as culture war 2020. We are hopefully going to have an honest conversation. Hey, Andrew, we're always talking about having an honest conversation, right? How many times do I have to hear? We need to have an honest conversation about race. We need to have an honest conversation about climate change. Well, you know what? We can have an honest conversation about life in this country. When does life begin? Should life be protected, preserved, and better understood? Does life matter? What pr- what protections and provisions should be put in place to actually make sure? that those that cannot defend themselves should be preserved and protected. And so this is going to only become a bigger and bigger issue. You're going to see the left really galvan I think try to galvanize this into one of their big issues for 2020. I think America's becoming more and more pro-life. I think they're, it's not going to work well. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for Buck Sexton, host of the Charlie Kirk Show. You go to Apple Podcasts, press subscribe, or go to tpusa.com. That's tpusa.com. We'll be right back. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton. I am the founder and executive director of Turning Point USA, the nation's largest student movement dedicated to educating students around the values of free markets and limited government. College campuses have become islands of totalitarianism. They have become places where freedom of speech and freedom of thought are not allowed. And instead, they've become a place where you must have a monolithic singular viewpoint in order to be respected and even have a platform. And as this year comes to an end and it's a graduation season, and I reflect back on the year at Turning Point USA, and I've seen our hundreds and hundreds of campus events that we've hosted and I see the over 1400 college and high school campuses that we're present on and hundreds of thousands of members and the 
millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people that we have reached on social media, it still is not enough. We need to continue to push for the values of free markets and limited government, American exceptionalism, on these campuses where the fight matters most. Because if we lose the next generation, if we lose students, we will have a country that soon becomes unrecognizable. We will have a country that embraces socialism, not capitalism. And if you don't believe whatever happens on college campuses will soon happen in the halls of Congress. And it's not that students are opposed to our ideas. It's that they're not exposed to them at all in the first place. I got an alert here that the constantly wrong but never in doubt congresswoman from New York's 14th congressional has a new tweet, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She uh, says to Barbara Streisand, if male politicians could get pregnant, there would be as many Planned Parenthood clinics as there are post offices. Can you, can you, can you interpret this, Andrew? I don't want to mansplain it to the audience. Well, I mean, I think that's the center of the Twitter debate today. Not that Twitter is the real world, but uh, basically you have a lot of progressive people on the left, uh, very, very upset at all the men that voted for uh, this bill in Alabama, uh, probably Georgia as well. Uh, there's uh, pictures of their faces going around Twitter. Uh, it's sort of attempt to dox these men saying, you should not be speaking about my body. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is uh, focusing in on that, certainly. Well, and so, I mean, AOC, who actually is the most powerful person, elected person in the Democrat primary pr- party, and is actually probably the most powerful Democrat outside of Barack Obama right now. Would you say that's true, Andrew? And I think yeah. conservatives have a lot to do with that because we talk about her all the time. Yeah, I mean, there was an article in Politico that I think said it uh, well, that it was the most, hers is the most coveted uh, endorsement, endorsement in, the, in, in the primary. It's the AOC primary. Oh, boy. Help us all. Um, the, so AOC had another tweet yesterday, and you could pull it up, where she said, this is really all about advancing a core tenant of the conservative worldview, the patriarchy. And I'm going to be honest, this is why I wish just AOC would talk to conservatives. I talk to liberals all the time. This is a super important point, that I talk to liberal journalists, I talk to liberal TV hosts, I talk to liberal radio show hosts, I have debate, I have dialogue, I have discussion. I, every day, every time I go on college campus, I have people that disagree with us. I invite them to the front of the line. We have conversations that are spirited and fruitful. I just wish AOC would do the same, because she had this tweet that was just so wrong. And so here's what she said yesterday. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Abortion bans aren't just about controlling women's bodies. Hard stop. Did, did anyone, did I say anything about controlling anything at all before? So she's just misrepresenting it intentionally. They're about controlling women's sexuality, owning women. Hold on a second. Okay. No. From limiting birth control to banning comprehensive sex ed, U.S. religious fundamentalists She's, she's declaring war on religion. Can you believe this? Clinging, w- clinging to their... Yeah, uh, God's gun in religion, right? Are working hard to outlaw sex that fails outside their theology. Okay. Ultimately, this is about women's power. When women are in control of their sexuality, it threatens a core element of underpinning of right-wing ideology, patriarchy. Okay, I know right-wing. I, I, by, first of all, I hate this term, right-wing. I hate it. 
I hate it. I try to never use it ever because I just don't call myself right wing. I think it's become a pejorative. And I know the conservative libertarian worldview better than most because I, I live in it. Patriarchy is not anything that we talk about. First of all, what would you have to say to someone like Nikki Haley? Do you think she's in this for the patriarchy? I mean, what do you have to say about someone like Ivanka Trump or Betsy DeVos or Kellyanne Conway or Mercedes Schlapp, Mercedes Schlapp or Kathy McMorris Rogers, who's the, one of the highest ranking women in the, in the house or Joni Ernst or any of these women, they're in this, the underpinning right-wing ideology is the patriarchy. When you actually look at the statistics, and we could pull all of them up, men are much more likely to commit suicide in America. Women are much more likely to graduate from high school, graduate from college, get a master's and a doctorate degree. Women comprise a majority of the small business startups. Men are much more likely to die while at work. Men are much more likely to die, go fighting at war. I can go through all the statistics, especially if you look at unemployment rates of men between the age of 25 to 35. The unemployment rate is much higher for men than it is for young women. I can, I can go piece by piece by piece. Women control the majority of the financial decisions in this country. Women in their 30s are in a much better financial condition than men in their 30s. Yet there's whole idea that a patriarchy exists. What patriarchy are you talking about? They say, well, women don't make up enough board positions on Forbes 500 CEO seats. Well, this is a great point to talk about, not a great point to make. Why is it that women at times don't make up the highest echelons of the corporate ladder? Well, usually women voluntarily exit the workforce in the late 20s or early 30s to go have children voluntarily. No one's forcing them to make that decision. No one coerced them into making that decision. No one told them they had to make that decision. They voluntarily left the workforce to go have children. The last part of AOC's tweet is, it's a brutal form of oppression to seize control of the one essential thing a person should command, their own body. That's the only thing they should command, though, Andrew. Not their spirit, not their mind, just the body. But what about the body of the baby within the woman? What about the body that, of the baby that can't control themselves? And you know, AOC here has 114,000 likes on this tweet. Can you believe well, that? You know, 250,000 likes on un- this tweet. It's unbelievable. The, the, you know, the, it's always a, an interesting form of projecting, I think, when... Uh, I totally with, agree. With, they always go straight to this idea of control. And, you know, I think it's actually more of a reflection about how they view the world. They're, they're, they view the world in terms of who has control, who doesn't, who has power, that's, who that's doesn't. That's exactly right. So their whole paradigm of analysis of politics is who's currently the people that have power, who are currently the people that are in control, and the people that aren't in control, the ones that are disaffected, are being exploited inherently. Well, first of all, this is just so silly because in America, large in part, those of which that have control are people that graduate high school, get married, don't commit crimes, and have a job. Amazing combination of success. And America is the only country in the world that guarantees success if you make good choices. That's what a meritocracy is. We're a country that rewards good choices. And so she thinks of this. She actually thinks that Alabama passed this law because people want to control their people. Like, ah, I'm so unhappy with my life. My religion says I must control people, therefore I pass it. Instead, the motivation is, we need to end this horror called abortion. We need to end this unbelievably bad practice called abortion. And we want to have more people in our world and have more babies. And the one people that are pregnant should have those children because we want this life is a gift. That's the motivation. So she immediately, and I think just errantly, right, would you say, m- describes it in a way that is so inappropriate and so outrageous. Well, they, they always avoid the, the, the personhood of the the of the baby 
right? They always talk. No, about that has no identity. All that matters, all that matters is right. And and the and the, the the right the, the the right political right in this country is not looking at it as trying to control anybody. It's saying there's a there's a baby that we need to protect because life is sacred. It's as simple as that. We actually want to empower the baby, uh, the most um, vulnerable uh, among us, right? And if you believe in this in this idea that it is actually a, a fully uh, human, um, not baby. fully it's formed, a, but it is a chi- it, it is a baby, it is a child, fully human, it has identity. And by yeah. the way, you know, I I tweeted this out earlier. I'm going to find it right now, and um, which is all the characteristics and how quick those ter- characteristics reach. It might really surprise you if you actually go and and read it. Um, and my Twitter is at charliekirk11. If you want to give me a follow, it's always great. So just so you know, there are 1.2 million children aborted every year in America. I want you to think about that. And so here's another question for the left. What if we want to just cut that number in half? Would you agree with that? Like, how do we have less abortions? They would, oh, no, that's a horrible thing. You want to control people. No. Well, it didn't used to be, right? I mean, no, Clinton, of course Clinton's not. famous for saying we want abortions Rare, to be um, few, and safe. safe. Safe, safe, legal, and rare. Yes, yeah, safe, legal. I can never remember that. I just always struggle with that. That is 3,288 abortions this day. This day. In this one hour that I have hosted the Buck Sexton radio show, which I'm honored to be doing, there have been 137 abortions in America. I want you to think about that. There's been 137 abortions in this country since I've started hosting this show. Oh my goodness. Is that, does that just send up a chill up your spine? There have been nine. There were nine during our commercial break. And in the 26 seconds that I have described this entire tweet, there was another abortion. I want you to think about that. Just when I started talking about my Twitter, there's already been another abortion. Like this. Every 26 seconds. And if you sort of zoom out since Roe v. Wade, right, 1973, I mean, there's been over 60 million abortions. It's a a number so... um, Unconscionable. It it becomes almost like the national debt. You become desensitized to it. You can't actually put that a, a number that large into context in your mind. No, no. And so... At 18 days, did you know a baby heartbeat a baby heartbeat starts? Did you know at 42 days brain waves are detected? Did you know at 52 days a baby can hiccup and yawn? At 8 weeks all organs are functioning. At 9 weeks a baby has fingerprints. At 10 weeks a baby can feel pain and at 12 weeks babies can smile. It's pretty amazing. Yet Democrats don't even want to have late-term abortion restrictions that allow all, that would restrict abortion with all these different categories. And just in this break that we're about to take right now, and I hope you hang with us because we got more stuff coming, there will be another nine abortions in just the break we have coming up right now. Nine babies will be aborted in just this break. It's horrifying. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Radio Show. You can follow me on Twitter at charliekirk11, tpusa.com, Charlie Kirk Show on Apple Podcast. We'll be right back. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk, founder of Turning Point USA, the nation's largest student movement dedicated to educating, empowering, and organizing students around the values of free markets and limited government, the Constitution, and, of course, American exceptionalism. We live in the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world, It is a blessing that we live in this country. We should be thankful that we live here, not angry that we live in this country. The horse race continues in the Democrat primary. I call it the carnival. 
think the circus gives it too much credit, but it's the carnival. It is, it is amazing. I agree with this assessment completely. I think Kevin McCarthy hit it on the head when he said this. Joe Biden will be the Jeb Bush of this cycle. Well, good for Kevin McCarthy. That's kind of like an insult, isn't it, Mr. Producer? I mean, pretty, pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. Yeah, it's Kevin McCarthy. Low words. energy Jeb. Yeah, low energy Joe or flip flop Joe. What do you think? I like or, creepy Joe. I like creepy Joe. I don't like him. I like the term creepy Joe. But I think he is going to be the Jeb Bush, or he already is. I mean, he's the front runner. He's raising all the money. And just wait, the knives are going to be out. And I know some liberal activists on Twitter, and I follow them. And boy, do they have anger towards Joe Biden. And I, what did AOC? I'll be. I don't want to say the word on radio. Something. If we're going to let the people that screwed up our climate now going to be our nominee or something like that, it's typical. Well, what did she say? She said conservatives on both sides of the aisle. And she was definitely talking about Joe Biden. But this is really important. It shows that that the Democrat primary, that the Democrat circus or carnival or whatever you want to call it, the Democrat show has become, as I like to call, as I like to say, the Trump-hating Olympics and whoever can be the most radical person in the room. It's quite, it's quite extraordinary. It's not good for the country either. There, there, there are common decent sense things that our country needs, like an infrastructure proposal. All these things have become impossible because the Democrats hate Donald Trump a lot more than they love America. They hate him so much that at all costs, no matter what's, what is it going to take, they have to oppose him. No matter what it is, they have to oppose him. And it's too bad because this country is needing right now for bipartisan approval of a variety of different things. And so just wait. You're going to see Bernie Sanders. You're going to see Elizabeth Warren. You're going to see Pete Buttigieg. You're going to see Kamala Harris start to unite against Joe Biden. You're going to see, see them unite. And I think, I, th- I think we're underestimating how quick and how sudden and how dramatic the fall of Joe Biden is going to be. At least in my estimation, that's what it's going to be. And so I guess the question is this. I'm just reading this headline right now that <laughs> some Hollywood actress poses naked in protest of Alabama's abortion bill passing. I, what is that supposed to mean? Emily, Emily Radzikowski. By the way, it was a female governor, wasn't it, that signed the bill? Is it not? It was. It was a female. So the war on women is being launched by a female governor. Go figure. That, that one. But, oh, you know, she doesn't really care about women and blah, 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 blah. That whole thing. And so, as Tucker Carlson said, this is exactly how the function of government is supposed to work is that you put people in place, you put people in positions of power, and then you have policies based on the people that you actually put in those positions of power. And I, I find it so amazing, kind of going back to my earlier point, and how, how passionate the Democrats have become to make sure that the lives of the unborn will never see the light of day. And we see this a lot, the anger and the vitriol on college campuses of the work that we do at Turning Point USA. At Turning Point USA, we are trying to fight America's culture war around the values of constitutional liberty and free markets and limited government. And we find so often that's, that the students on the left just have contempt and vitriol and are so programmed around these perspectives that you can't tell them anything different. And that's exactly why we are doing what we are doing. And I do anticipate this abortion fight to heat up even further. 
I do anticipate this to intensify um, heading into 2020. Well, this has been a fun first hour. We're going to be around for another couple. So hang tight here at the Buck Sexton Radio Show. If you like what you heard, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe on The Charlie Kirk Show. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Radio Show. Filling in for my good friend here, I am the founder of Turning Point USA, the nation's largest student movement dedicated to educating, empowering, and organizing college and high school students around the values of free markets and limited government. We believe America is the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. I'm also the host of the Charlie Kirk Show podcast, which can be found on Apple Podcast. If you have an Apple device, just open up that podcast app, type in Charlie Kirk Show, press subscribe. It really helps us out. I'm joined here by the executive producer of the Charlie Kirk Show, Andrew. Hello, producer hello. Andrew. Hello, hello. And it, it, it is quite extraordinary, isn't it, Andrew, just seeing the, the Democrats' outrage of having more children in the world. They are very upset today. Uh, they're even posing in the nude in protest as actress uh, Emily Rod. Radichkowski. I think I follow her on Instagram or something. <laughs> uh, and Alyssa Milano is, of course, in the mix as well. It, and it, it never ceases to amaze me how, how extreme the Democrats are willing to go just to oppose Donald Trump. seems no matter what the issue is, how whatever it takes to oppose him at all costs, it is the a peach at all costs caucus. And it's going to be interesting to see actually on the debate stage when they do have a debate when people actually disagree and say, oh, I don't know if we should do this impeachment thing. Oh, you're really a conservative. You're bought by the right. You're all these things. I do have to say, I have to go after somebody in particular. Elizabeth Warren. Can you find the exact language she used about Fox News? Can you find the exact language? Elizabeth Warren, in an attempt maybe to... I don't know, get attention. I mean, I really respected and appreciated Amy Klobuchar and Bernie Sanders going on Fox News and actually having a town hall. Mayor Pete's doing it as well. Pete Buttigieg. And anyway, I have to say, President Trump pronouncing Buttigieg the other day was one of the funniest things. You got Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> it was very funny. But um, what did Elizabeth Warren say about Fox News? What was her exact? She said... A Fox News town hall adds money to the hate-for-profit machine, to which I say, hard pass. I think she said something about it being a network for racists or something like that. Pulling it up. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, she's, she goes on and on and on all through this. She says, I love town halls. I've done more than 70 since January. I'm glad to have a television audience be part of them. Fox News has invited me to do a town hall, but I'm turning them down. Here's why. Fox News is a hate-for-profit racket that gives a megaphone to racists and conspiracists. I don't know who she's talking about. I mean, she must be talking about her friend Louis Farrakhan. It's designed to turn us against each other, risking life and death consequences to provide cover for the corruption that's rotting our government and hollowing out our middle class. She's, um, this is on Twitter, by the way. This is Elizabeth Warren. She goes on and on and on. Oh, my goodness. Five paragraphs. Anyway, here, here's one where it says, I won't ask millions of Democrat primary voters to tune into an outlet that profits from racism and hate in order to see our candidates. 
It's, you know what really upsets me about this is that when everything becomes racist, nothing is racist. There are actual racists in American society, and they should be condemned, and they should be ostracized. But when Elizabeth Warren says a network with viewers throughout a week of 15 to 20 million people and 5 million a night that watch on primetime are just all racist, a hate-for-profit machine, she's trying to indict an entire segment of the American population. What kind of contempt and what kind of anger is within her to say something like that? And it's really too bad because Bernie Sanders, so what is she saying? Bernie Sanders is okay with appeasing race? Is this her way to like attack other people in the primary, Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar, that they're somehow okay with it and, and she's not? And it's this sort of attack on the main institutions on the conservative arena. And so if you have noticed how the left has reignited their war on Rush Limbaugh, they've reignited their war on Sean Hannity, on Tucker Carlson, on Fox News, on think tanks such as the Judicial Crisis Network. It's like all of a sudden the left has realized that there is a well-built conservative infrastructure that is now behind Donald Trump completely. And it's not just the war on Trump. It's behind all the organizations. It's behind the pundits, behind the companies, behind the media networks that are also in harmony with Donald Trump. And yes, Fox News is a singular piece of opposite opinion on all the cable networks. Every cable network agrees on the exact same thing on every single issue. You go to CNN, MSNBC, HLN, ABC, CBS, NBC, they agree on every single issue, no matter what not, it is. Not to mention Washington Post. Washington New Post, York New York Times, Chicago Tribune, LA Times, you name it, every major network. And then you have, not to mention the online, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, and Fox News is the singular, the singular different voice on cable. And they get all of the hate, all of the boycotts, all of the attention. And for doing what? For having a separate opinion? For having a difference of opinion? For having a perspective that might be a little bit out of what would be called the beltway ordinary? And they say they give credence to racists and all this. Hold on a second. The most racist stuff I've heard have been on networks like CNN, where Bakari Sellers said, I'm not going to say it on air because it's so bad. He said something horrible about Kanye West and insulted him using a racial pejorative. I'm not going to say it. I mean, I can go time and time again of horrific things that are said. I'll give you another example. On MSNBC in the last couple, in the last months, you had a contributor that, and this is, this is one of the most racist things that the left always says. The left says this all the time. They say, well, we need illegals because who else is going to pick our vegetables and clean our houses? That's such a racist thing to say, to say that illegal aliens are not good for nothing more than housework. And they said this on MSNBC, it goes completely unanswered. And so Elizabeth Warren believes just because a network might challenge her on her fake Native American ancestry, that might challenge her on her socialist ideas, that might challenge her on her radicalism, somehow she is not able to go on there and she says, I'm not going to give them a pro you know, hate-for-profit machine. Instead, I don't remember, Andrew, maybe you could enlighten me. How many um, town halls did MSNBC do with any of the candidates for the Republican candidates back in 2016? I don't think they did any of them. So if it was really like a hate-for-profit thing, Elizabeth Warren, why didn't the other ones do it? Why didn't the other ones give credence to that? Well, I think this goes back to what you're always saying about how the, uh, the Democratic Party right now, uh, there's so many candidates, they're forced... Uh, to, to find ways, radicalize yeah, themselves. to find ways to stand out from the pack, and this seems like a, a a very transparent attempt at saying, well, okay, well, if Bernie and me are often lumped into the same uh, group, 
well, how can I out Bernie Bernie? I'm going to I'm going to stick it to Fox, even so, though, you know, Bernie Sanders obviously did his town hall with Fox. And it was, by all accounts, a great success for his campaign. So to go to one of my favorite heroes in American cinema history, Kelsey Grammer, none other than Fraser Crane. He was a great radio show host, too, on KACL 780, the Seattle talk of hello, everybody. This is Dr. Fraser Crane, the Fraser fans out there. Kelsey Grammer said, says Trump has accomplished more than the Washington clowns have in 60 years. Washington didn't do us any favors. I love Kelsey Grammer. He's been a rock-solid conservative Republican for years. Uh, and actually, one of his best performances, Andrew, was in um, the television series about the Chicago mayor. It was called, uh, so I can't remember the name of it. It was excellent. 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 Well, so, the listeners might not know that you are a proud Chicagoan. I am a tr- proud Chicagoan. So you know what the fun thing about being from Chicago is we have term limits in Illinois, one term in office, one term in jail. And we always we vote early, vote often. My grandmother passed away in the mid-1990s. She's been voting Democrat ever since. Um, and you know, so actually seeing a profile in a Chicago mayor was something uh, quite enlightening and quite fun. And so kind of going... Going back to this idea of Elizabeth Warren boy- boycotting Fox News and boycotting the conservative networks, Andrew, isn't it amazing? You've been to a lot of my campus events at Turning Point USA. You've been to a lot of my kind of campus outreach. Is it incredible how the left st- stays away from conversation, how conservatives want to go towards the conversation? Isn't that how you can tell who's on the right side of the issue and who's actually on the proper side of a discussion? It's well, I think, you know, the conservatives, at least on campus, for example, I mean, there's just so much more pressure on conservatives there that their arguments actually get better and better and better. And the student activists get their messaging honed and they have to challenge uh, the, 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 their assumptions. And what you end up having is uh, activists on campus that are way more effective. I think the modern left needs to take a page out of the, the conservatives on campus. That when you get challenged, you get better. Well, and then you embrace it. And so if Elizabeth Warren wants to be president, if Elizabeth Warren wants to be president of this country, she's going to have to talk to people like Fox News. And Donald Trump, this is what I love about Donald Trump. From the day Donald Trump announced he was doing, he was doing interviews with anyone. He was doing... Well, call- now he's been deplatformed by yeah, CNN. exactly. They won't, they won't show his, his rallies anymore because they realize they, they might have contributed or, to... Yeah, or that they actually might convert other people. My favorite is, you know, they, Donald Trump used to do phoners with CNN. He used to call into CNN and just take a whole hour. With, I mean, he, the guy would talk to anybody. He'll take any question about anything. And if he has a problem with it, he'll tell you. Elizabeth Warren is a coward. She is a coward for not wanting to go on Fox News, for actually hearing a difference of opinion or sharing your different opinion. You know what I actually respect about Bernie Sanders? You know what he said? He said, well, there might be people that watch Fox News that have a bad opinion of me, and I want to give them a good one. Good for him. That's exactly what civil discourse is all about. That's, right. That's what dialogue is all about. Well, you, sh- you should not be afraid to hear or say something that people might be disagreeable with. Well, and this whole decision just sort of reeks of, of a basket of deplorables type of, of, of statement. You know, I mean, you're, you're talking to an audience or a, a network that represents roughly half of the American electorate. Yeah, That's not, exactly not, right. Not, not all of them, obviously. Not all conservatives like Fox or listen to Fox. There's a lot of critiques of Fox, but you're talking to a roughly half of the electorate that put President Trump into the Oval Office. And then she has the gall and really the audacity to say, you know, hey, listen, you're a hate-for-profit racket. No, and then you guys advance racism. It's Essentially, it's like saying basket of deplorables or what else? What else? Irredeemable is what she said. Trump supporters are irredeemable. Right. I think this is going to come back to haunt her. She might see it as useful in the primaries, but if 
you know, she was to, you know, make it any any farther, you know, she this this is going to be a, a problematic thing to say. I totally completely agree. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the Buck Sexton Radio Show. We're going to be talking about school choice in my column that just got published in The Hill. If you like what you're hearing, you can go to Apple Podcast, type in Charlie Kirk Show, press subscribe. Founder of Turning Point USA, tpusa.com. We will be right back. Hello, everybody. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Radio Show. Having a lot of fun here. I'm the founder of Turning Point USA. You can go to tpusa.com. If you want to get more involved in the culture war on college campuses, um, I just have a new piece out for The Hill where I say, let's talk about education and school choice in 2020. And this is so important because I believe this is the issue that could break the back of the Democrat Party. I believe that this is the issue that could change the fabric of the political discourse and could also change the political dynamics as we know it. The, it is immoral and it is wrong that there are students, particularly minority students, that are stuck in these perpetually failing public schools. That students are being forced to go to schools with, with teachers that should be fired, lowly motivated administrators, underfunded schools. And so I talk about school choice as the ability for parents to be able to send their kids to better schools. We have over 50 million students, primary and secondary students, enrolled in schools in the United States. A great example of this was the Milwaukee Parental School Choice Program. This was the vision of Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, one of my intellectual heroes, was a champion of school choice. And this was implemented in 1990. And there are 20, now there, there are voucher systems all across the country. And the Milwaukee Parental School Choice Program has been one of the most successful school choice experiments in history, raising test scores, raising literacy rates, lowering crime, and you name it. Yet, But unfortunately, it is the education unions and liberal politicians that say we need to spend more money on education. But if we actually had a school choice plan, the public schools would then have the pressure to better spend the money they're already having. It is not a funding problem, believe it or not. We have thrown more and more money at public schools, like, for example, in Chicago. Between 27 and 2018, they were, the CPS, Chicago Public Schools, were bringing in more than $200 more per student. The total of $5,320 per high school student. This is not factor in the funding from the state of Illinois. That is far less than it costs to educate a student on, in private schools or in charter schools in the city of Chicago. And I believe this is such an important issue because not only... Rarely do you have an issue that is the right policy, but also really, really good politics. And also, the other side cannot contend with it. The other side cannot promise. The other side cannot respond to the fact that students are failing because of Democrat politicians, failing public schools, and teacher unions. Their only response is we need to throw more money at the problem. Where he's like, well, why don't? Why can't we send that kid to this school? Oh well. Uh, and then they, they, they lose it. The teacher unions have disallowed Democrats from talking about this issue altogether. The teacher unions, which own the Democrat primary, the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers, the two major teacher unions in this country, they own the Democrat primary. They own the American left. They, do not, they will not allow and they do not allow 
politicians on the left to talk about this issue. So rarely do you get this perfect trinity, this intersection, where you have really good policy that will improve people's lives. You have the ability to draw differences with your opponent on it. And it's also very popular. It's very popular. 80% of the American people, 90% support school choice. And I think that we are missing this issue because what could be more personal for a mother or for a family than sending your child to a good school or sending your child to a better school? What could be more person? What could be more important than improving your life and improving your kid's life than sending your child to a school that allows them a higher likelihood to get skills and a high, higher likelihood to succeed in their life. And that's exactly what school choice does. School choice is the issue that could break the back of the Democrat primary. And I could tell you, the work that I'm doing at Turning Point USA and on college campuses, I find so often that students that think they're liberals totally and completely agree that our education system is total nonsense, that it needs to be rewired, that our education system needs to be changed to allow low-income, particularly minority students, the freedom, and that's really what it's all about, the freedom to be able to go to a better school, the freedom to be able to pull that parental trigger to be able to go to a school that is that succeeds. Because if we do not have a society or a culture that respects every individual's right to education, or I should rephrase that, every, every individual's access to education, then we are going to continually have this endless cycle of poverty and violence that plagues our inner cities. How are we going to break that cycle? Schools that work. And what's so frustrating is that now we are having millions and millions of illegals come into our country that will then be put in these very failing public schools where they're more likely to live in poverty. If you go to a failing public school and you're not taught to read, if you're not taught to write, if you're not taught to do math, you're far less likely to succeed. You're far less likely to be able to contribute meaningfully. And because of that, we then have an entire portion of the American population that is disenfranchised and feels really disenfranchised. So they turn to government benefits. They turn to the government dole. They turn to social welfare. And when that happens, you have an entire portion of the American population that then becomes Democrat voters. And so school choice is an issue that is good policy. It improves people's lives. It can increase the standard of living for all people. And it can elevate it can elevate the perception that Republicans and conservatives don't care about the inner cities. I think conservatives should have an ambitious urban agenda. I think conservatives should have a school choice, opportunity zone, small business agenda that could totally change the dynamics of politics within our inner cities. I have never been more focused on an issue that I think could break the back of the Democrat primary and put Republicans and majorities in state houses, in Congress permanently, because the Democrats can't support this issue. I'm going to say that again. Democrats cannot support this issue because their number one special interest group, the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association, own their party. We talk about this all the time at Turning Point USA, TPUSA.com, and students are so passionate about allowing their peers or allowing their brothers, their sisters, or other students that are in elementary and high school education go to better schools. If you like what you're hearing, go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, Charlie Kirk Show, press subscribe. 
Helps us out. Give us five stars. Apple Podcast, Charlie Kirk Show, TPUSA.com, Turning Point USA. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Radio Show, founder of Turning Point USA, the nation's largest student movement dedicated to educating, empowering, and organizing students around the values of free markets and limited government. My my friend and Mr. Producer of the Charlie Kirk Show, Charlie Kirk Show podcast that you can find on Apple Podcast, reminded me of some of my predictions. Yeah, one of the things we've been covering a lot in the shows, if you guys have been tuning in, uh, is that, you know, Charlie has a hunch that they're the you know the uh, front runner in the Democratic Party for 2020 has not yet emerged. Uh, despite all the buzz around uh, Vice President Biden, uh, you know Charlie's. I mean, you've said this time and time again that you think he's gonna get eaten up by the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. He will that, be devoured by the radical Democrats that have taken over this party. Well, and it's been really impressive since you've sort of made those predictions on the show. It's like. Every day, it seems like somebody else is entering the fray, you know, whether it be Mark Cuban or now most recently uh, de Blasio. Well, so I have to talk about de Blasio. This is really interesting. Imagine being the worst at something and then think you can be president. He is the worst mayor in America. He really is. I mean, I, I used to love New York City. I know there's probably a lot of listeners listening to this from New York. I love New York under Mayor Giuliani. And I'll have to say this, I'll say this publicly, I think Mayor Bloomberg did a fine job. I think there was a lot of stuff I disagree with, the, the big gulp confiscation thing was silly and stupid, the gun control stuff, but there were some common sense policies Mayor Bloomberg instituted. Well, he's a businessman. He's, he was a center-right businessman, and on, on, he was center-right on fiscal stuff, center-left on social stuff. Super successful businessman. I think he's kind of become a little prickly in recent years against Trump. I think he's spending money to elect Democrats. Don't misquote me, Media Matters, because I know you're listening. I don't love Mayor Bloomberg, but I think New York under Mayor Bloomberg was a reasonably well-run city. New York has become a mess under de Blasio. He cares more about appeasing leftist radicals than actually running the city properly. The amount of vagrancy, the amount of homelessness. You know, Mayor Giuliani instituted a no vagrancy, no homelessness policy because he said, you know what? We have so many homeless shelters here. If you are going to, what do they call it? Um, I don't want to say the a negative connotation about it, but solicit. Is that a proper word towards it? Or panhandle? Yeah, that, I was going to say, I don't know if that's a negative word or eh. not, but I think it's just the word it is, right? If you're going to be on the streets and ask for money, or do you can't do that. You should go to a home. That was one of the, that was one of the ways Mayor Giuliani cleaned up the streets. Mayor Giuliani, can you imagine just, I just want everyone to understand this. 19 years ago, a Republican won the mayor's race in New York. Can you just see how far this country has come? That 19 years ago, there was a Republican mayor of the city of New York, Mayor Giuliani. It's incredible how far this country there has come. There was a Republican mayor in Los Angeles, too, from 93 to 2001. I didn't know that. Yeah. De- decent-minded leaders used to exist. There's not been a Republican mayor of Chicago since 1931. That's an interesting statistic. Anyway. So imagine being the worst at something. Imagine being awful, the worst hitter in the major leagues, and then complaining that you're not on the all-star team. This is Mayor de Blasio. He is the worst mayor in America. The city is a mess. The crime is rising. Vagrancy is rampant. The taxes are out of control. I mean, look at how they screwed up this Amazon deal. This is a great example of the fecklessness of leadership of Mayor de Blasio. He allowed a constantly wrong but never in doubt socialist from New York's 14th Congressional District, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to hijack the recruitment of jobs into New York City. 
Mayor de Blasio could have called up Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and said, listen, I'm in charge of this negotiation. Allow the adults in the room to handle Amazon. Instead, he kowtowed to the leftist radical pressure of AOC, and the city lost 20,000 jobs because of it. He is the worst mayor in America, and now he is in the Democrat primary. So who else do we have? We have Bullock, right? We have Bullock from Montana, who, one of my favorite kind of pieces in the last couple days of audiovisual, has been seeing him try to name one accomplishment as governor, and he just kind of stumbles, uh, I don't know, and he's been a horrible governor of Montana. Montana is probably one of my favorite states in the entire country. I love going to Montana. I've actually been to all 50 states, so I can compare them all, I think, rather reasonably. He's a horrific, horrific governor, and he thinks he can bring people together. Actually, the not-so-closed, not the not-so-secret narrative in Montana is that he's going to run for the presidency and then go back and run for the Senate against Steve Daines. He would give Steve Daines a run for his money in Montana. I think Steve would eke it out. That would be a really tough race. That would be a $50 million race right there. That would be a $50 million race. Well, and if you count uh, Beto rebooting... Officially rebooting. While he's getting a haircut? What the heck is that all about? <laughs> and going on The View. That, uh, no, no, my favorite is, I don't know if it was you or somebody else who did a Beto impersonation. Was it you? It was. The hands. It was, no, somebody else did like the voice. Said, I really think that I don't have privilege, but I do have privilege. And I think it reinforced the narrative. But what did Vanity Fair come out and say, Andrew? Well, Today, Vanity Fair, the epitome of privilege... Well, you know, about when he went on The View, he was asked by Joy Behar uh, if going on the cover of Vanity Fair had been a mistake, to which he answered, yeah, I think it reinforces that perception of privilege. Um, and so he he's basically then goes on and to he say, kowtows, no one is born to be president of the United States of America, least of all me, and has since tried to walk back the fact that he didn't say he was born to run. Uh, to which uh, the I, editor of Vanity I'm sorry, Fair... when is Bruce Springsteen going to sue him? <laughs> I mean, when, when is Bruce Springsteen going to have a class action, not a class action? But this but... is what's great. It's, it's great to watch, watch all the behind the scenes. So the editor of Vanity Fair, uh, Radhika Jones, isn't buying it. Uh, and she's quoted as saying in an upcoming Christian Amanpour interview, I mean, he did say it, and I have felt actually it is clear what he meant. So... Uh, Beto's got some explaining to do, not least of which is why he's only pulling well, it two percent. I, I love when Trump says he sunk like a rock. What happened to him? Uh, he's really been a, he's been probably the greatest twenty twenty fl- you know flounder, and and it really kind of goes to show he really had very little merit. He had very little um, following. I shouldn't say following. Let me correct myself. He had very little depth. That's what I'm looking for in yeah, his U.S. Thin. Senate race. Yeah, he, he was, was very th- he was always very thin. He was always very heavy on the platitudes and the viral videos, but there's very little behind it. So he's rebooting his campaign. Again, we're in May and we're already in the reboots. I mean, that's really interesting. Um, He'll probably be on the debate stage, but there will be a moment. And the way I kind of see this all coming together, see, I've become a a master, an expert, a doctorate level proficient in the American left. Would you say that's true, Andrew? You're good at predicting things. Well, I'm not the predicting, but the American left, like understanding the left. Well, you're good at predicting because you, you understand what drives them from a motivational standpoint, from a foundational right. standpoint. Well, and I'm not trying to overly describe my insight into the American left, but I deal with them every day on college campuses. And the college campuses are the leading indicator of the spirit and the energy and the center of gravity of the, left, the leftist movement. And so if you understand what drives a college leftist, do you understand what drives students on a students on an issue or 
student groups or student activists, you can then reasonably predict what is going to happen and how it's going to happen. And so because of this, there's going to be a moment on the Democrat primary stage where Biden will be right there in the middle, kind of where Trump used to be. Remember, Trump never left the middle. I, I loved those debates. Those were some of the great things. And Biden will be there in the middle, and he will be flanked by Warren and Harris and Gillibrand and all of this. And somebody's going to say something like that, probably Gillibrand, because she has nothing to lose, and her campaign has been so amazingly unimpressive. It's really been, it's actually been impressive how unimpressive her campaign has been. She's going to say, I think it's time for a woman to be in the White House. I think it's time for a woman to be president. Someone's going to say something intersectional or a person of color. I do have to say that their field is, is much wider than people actually realize. Their field is much not as diverse as I think people thought it would be. Anyway, And then Biden will punch back. What do you mean? That, just because you look a certain way or are a woman or a man doesn't mean that's not a qualification. And the war of identity politics will be launched within the Democrat primary. They will have a conflict around skin color, around gender identity that will be so horrific to watch, but also very insightful for those of us that actually enjoy political theater. And this, this is already being signaled. This is already being talked about. In fact, I, I think it was Simone Sanders that said that about Biden, that we can't have a white man. I, I tweeted at one of them and she responded and she said, well, I said that in a different context. Obviously, I believe Joe Biden can be president because his ideas are right or, or something silly like that. But the horse race of the Democrat primary now is, is so interesting because in some ways they're trying to out-radicalize themselves. It's the Trump-hating Olympics, as I've always called it. But they have such little actual differences amongst their own opinions of how much they want to take, what direction they want to take the country. See, in what made the Republican primary in 2016 so interesting is you had a lot of dramatic differences. Jeb Bush and Ted Cruz did not agree on immigration in the 2016 primary. John Kasich and Donald Trump did not agree on much in the 2016 primary. What, what actually substantively does Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker disagree on? What, what does Kirsten Gillibrand and Elizabeth Warren actually disagree on? Very little. How much they hate Trump. I mean, what are they going to do in the primary, on the debate? I hate Trump. I hate him a lot more than I hate. No, no way can you hate him more than I do. And they'll definitely throw out the word constitutional crisis. Oh, I, no, by the way, we should have a drinking game for the demo. I don't actually drink very much for all the audience to understand. Very rare occasions, but a metaphorical one, right? You know what I'm saying? You could have bingo. How about that? You could kind of. You could drink water. Yeah, anyway. So the, we're. <laughs> so. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the Buck Sex for Buck Sex on the Buck Sex and Radio Show. You can follow us tpusa.com or go to Charlie Kirk Show on Apple Podcasts. Press subscribe. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Radio Show. This is Charlie Kirk, founder of Turning Point USA and host of the Charlie Kirk Show podcast. You can go download that on Apple Podcasts. Press subscribe. Really helps us out. I'm reading here on Drudge something that reminded me of a column I wrote last week. I wrote a column for Breitbart.com that said, Trump's greatest show of power is in his reluctance to use power. And I kind of detailed the president's courage in standing up to Iran, standing up to Venezuela, standing up to Russia, but also not going as far to engage U.S. military might in endless wars and endless conflict. This is such a fine line. Because yes, we should take a huge 
stance against the evil Iranian regime. We should take a strong stance against the number one world funder of terror. We should take a stance against Russia, Vladimir Putin doing nefarious things all across the world. We should take an even stronger stance against China. And yes, we should take a strong stance against Nicolas Maduro and his horrendous citizen exploitation in the country of Venezuela. But I also talk about in this column what he should not do. So I used, I used the first parameter of talking about Venezuela. I talk about Venezuela that right now, sure, we could put, America could put 100,000 troops in Venezuela. We can make Guaido go into power. We'd, we'd lose American citizens for that. We would lose civilians, no doubt. War is messy. War is horrible. War is one of the worst things that human beings can engage in. I think far too often, for whatever reason, war is romanticized. It's something that never should be romanticized. It should be the last possible option imaginable. So let's say we get Guaido in power. It wouldn't take much military might. It would happen almost immediately. Oh, the Americans are coming. Well, then what? Well, then we'd have to rebuild the schools that we broke. We'd have to fund all the hospitals. And all of a sudden, we'd have another permanent military intervention in another part of the world. Meanwhile, we have a $22 trillion debt. The same could be said for Iran. And this is a very dangerous potential path that we're on right now. Iran is an evil, murderous, terrorist funding regime. Iran should be sanctioned. Iran should not be sent pallets of cash like Barack Obama did. But you can think a country should be put in check. You think a country should be shunned. You, think, you can think a country should have economic pressure put against it without supporting a ground war, without doing another country's bidding. And so on the front page of Drudge, I read something that said that a Saudi Arabian newspaper urges United States surgical strikes on Iran. This is really important. For those of you that kind of follow my commentary, you know I'm no huge fan of Saudi Arabia. I think that they have been double-faced and double-minded in the eyes of the United States for far too long. I talk about their involvement in 9-11. I talk about their funding of madrasas across the world. I talk about their funding of al-Qaeda and also the most radical form of Islamism, which is Wahhabism. But I'm equally as critical against Iran. For whatever reason, it seems as if there has to be this binary choice that you can't be critical of Saudi Arabia while also being critical of Iran. I'm very critical of both. But this paper said that the Saudi Arabian paper urges the United States to do surgical strikes against Iran, which would be an act of war, which would put us in another endless conflict potentially in the Middle East. This would be a horrendous mistake. If we are doing the bidding of another country's foreign policy, that is a mistake. Saudi Arabia and Iran have a Shia-Sunni conflict that goes back hundreds and thousands of years. Not thousands, a thousand years probably. This would be an unbelievable mistake for our country to attack war against a sovereign country. The last time we did that was when we evaded Iraq. Iraq, the Iraq war was one of the worst mistakes, foreign policy mistakes in American history. In American history, spent trillions of dollars in a region, had nothing to show for it, thousands of Americans' lives lost, tens of thousands of vets have PTSD, and we attacked a sovereign nation with an inappropriate response to 9-11. So I guess my word... To the wise, my word, my word of caution here, we should have an America first foreign policy. Yes, it is America first to put sanctions on Iran because Iran is funding terror directly against America and against our interests. They could shut the Strait of Hormuz. They could shut, 
down the flow of energy. But no, it is not in our interests to get in a ground war with 120,000, 400,000, whatever many troops it would be against Iran. And then what? Let's say we overthrow the Ayatollah Khamenei. Let's say we overthrow Ahmadinejad. We've done that before. We did that in 1953. And then, of course, that got displaced, which led us to the Iranian Revolution, which we had the radicalism, which we have today. The Shah was far less radical than we have today. But the, so- the seeds of resentment that we sowed in displacing the leader back in 1953 is one of the reasons we're there today. Why would we continue to make the same mistakes that we made there? You can have pressure against Iran. You can believe that they're evil and murderous without having to do the bidding of another country in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, that wants us to do surgical strikes against a sovereign country. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Radio Show. We'll be right back. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Radio Show. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for my friend, the great Buck Sexton. It is an honor to be hosting with you today. I am the founder and executive director of Turning Point USA, the nation's largest student movement dedicated to educating the next generation around the values of free markets limited government in the Constitution. I am also the host of the Charlie Kirk Show on Apple Podcasts. Go to Apple Podcasts, type in the Charlie Kirk Show, press subscribe, maybe give us a five-star rating. That really helps us out. We give you the news of the week and a unique take on everything that is going on. Today, President Trump talked and unveiled his immigration proposal. President Trump has really changed the conversation when it comes to immigration in this country. Both parties have ignored this issue for so long, and they both have different reasons for why they want open borders. Traditionally, Republicans want open borders for cheap labor, for the ability for these big corporations to be able to have uh, workers, illegal workers, be able to undercut wages. And Democrats want illegals for votes. They want them for potential political control. And they want to be able to use certain portions of the American population for their own political purposes. See, this is what the left is very, very good at. The left has become experts at pitting different American groups against each other. So when you look at illegals, the left wants to be able to use them as political, a political voting base, but also as a way to use their suffering towards their own political power. And President Trump, to his credit, started his original campaign launch back in June of 2015 on the issue of immigration. See, both parties had refused to fix this issue. George W. Bush did not build the wall. Bill Clinton did not build the wall. George H.W. Bush didn't build the wall. Obama certainly didn't build the wall. Ronald Reagan didn't build the wall. In fact, Ronald Reagan offered amnesty to millions of illegals in California and other parts of the country is what in what he later called one of his biggest mistakes. We now have well over 15 to 20 million illegals in this country. It's probably even more than that. And the issue is not just what do you do with the people that are already here, but what are we doing to stop the next 1 million illegals from entering our country? We are expected to have 1 million border crossings into our country alone this year. One million border crossings. One percent of the entire population of Guatemala 
is anticipated to immigrate or to border jump to this country. Now, I will tell you, I get quite bothered by the terminology immigration because immigration means you obey the law, you wait in line, you don't commit crimes in your home country, you visit the United States Embassy, you apply, you wait your turn, you enter the country, you find a job, you pay taxes, you have kids, and your kids can then have a better life than you. That is immigration. It is not fair that someone from Guatemala can cut in line someone from Belarus or someone from Vietnam that has to wait in line and does not have the geographic proximity to border jump into our country. So I'm very hesitant to even call that immigration. It is line cutting and border jumping. We never have as a country ever talked positively about cutting in line. We've never said, oh yeah, it's a good thing that people are cutting in line. No matter what it is, whether it be as something as simple as a restaurant or boarding a plane, there is a cultural process that is within our country that we respect people that are patient and obey the rule of law and the structure of systems. However, when it comes to the issue of immigration, I do not equate people that cut in line and jump the border as the same people that wait patiently to get their turn. And so President Trump has changed the dynamic when it comes to immigration in this country. For far too long, we have agreed as conservatives to have open borders to appease the left for our own purposes. And now it is having significant cultural, financial, and national security implications in our country. Illegals cost well over $100 billion a year in state, local, and federal tax burden. Illegals in the state of Arizona are twice as likely to commit a crime versus a natural born citizen. You look at the amount of guns being smuggled across our southern border. Tens of thousands of guns every single month. Hundreds of pounds of drugs are smuggled every single day across the southern border. Children are being sex trafficked. Over 10,000 children are sex trafficked across the southern border every single month. And the president has changed this dynamic. And he has even been more generous than some people in the conservative base would have been comfortable with him to be to offer a DACA deal and to even go as far to say that there should be a way that illegals can stay in our country if they obey the law, if in return you have border security. See, if the Democrats actually cared about protecting the people that were in this country illegally and were worried about them, then they would have struck a deal with the president to be able to build the wall to prevent more illegals coming into this country, to prevent more people that are in a position of suffering while in exchange fixing the problem once and for all. The president had some comments on this. Let's go to cut one. Currently, 66% of legal immigrants come here on the basis of random chance. They're admitted solely because they have a relative in the United States. And it doesn't really matter who that relative is. Another 21% of immigrants are issued either by random lottery or because they're fortunate enough to be selected for humanitarian relief. The president is critiquing the fact that our immigration system, our legal immigration system right now, 
is so screwed up in the sense that if you know someone in this country, you have an opportunity to come here. This is called family chain migration. When in reality, we should have the smartest, most qualified, most ambitious entrepreneurial people in the world come to this country. See, I have this debate among some people in conservative circles that say, oh, no, 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 we don't need more immigrants altogether. I totally disagree. I think we need millions and millions of more qualified, ambitious people. We do not have a land problem in this country. You go to Nebraska, the Dakotas, Iowa, Illinois, where I'm from, from Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. We have unbelievable natural resources, abundant amount of land. We could build forever. We, have, we, we could fit the entire world's population in Texas, by the way, and still have land left over, still have tracts of land left over. If you believe in market principles, you first and foremost believe in the rule of law. So I'm not an open borders person, like some people on the extreme libertarian side are, where they say we have to open up the borders and unrestricted amount of legal immigra- of immigration, illegal or illegal, there's no such thing. I don't agree with that. But if you have qualified people entering your workforce and they're going to start businesses and they're going to compete and create wealth, of course we want those people in our country. And since we have such a booming economy, we have job openings of qualified people that want to come to this country. I find inspiration from someone that has grown up in less than desirable circumstances from Vietnam, from Laos, Cambodia, Guatemala, Somalia, anywhere in the country, and anywhere in the world, I should say. And they want to come here and make something of themselves. See, a country should always want ambitious people. A country should always want law-abiding people. And a country should always want ethical people. If those three things are, per- are how we design an immigration system, we'd have a much more prosperous country today. Because if you have someone that comes into the country and they're going to go to school, they're going to obey the law, they're going to act ethically, there's nothing negative that could come out of that. Well, I shouldn't say there's nothing negative. There's very little low chance that something negative would come out of that. Very low chance. Instead, they will start businesses and they'll reinvest in our country almost assuredly, or they'll get high-paying jobs, they'll purchase houses, and they'll participate in the market economy. Now, the problem is, as the president pointed out, when you have people that are just related to other people and you're not actually screening for ambition, likelihood to participate in entrepreneurial activity or their wealth coming into the country, anything, anything that you're able to screen for that has some leading indicator that they will be able to produce for themselves and their family and maybe provide jobs in the future. All of a sudden, you have a higher likelihood that those immigrants will then take welfare and they will live on the government dole. And that's not helpful for anybody. So let's go to cut two as the president continues to comment on the immigration debate. Under the senseless rules of the current system, we're not able to give preference to a doctor, a researcher, a student who graduated number one in his class from the finest colleges in the world. Anybody, we're not able to take care of it. We're not able to make those incredible breakthroughs. If somebody graduates top of their class from the best college, sorry, go back to your country. We want to keep them here. And it's the president, just to kind of add clarity, what he was saying, he was almost, in my observation of what he said, 
I think, critiquing how silly it is. If someone, if someone graduates first in their class, of course we want them here in America. So to kind of, de- I'm going to detail his America First immigration plan in just a second. I'm going to walk through exactly what are the actual policies within it. But before I get to that, I want to just reinforce the fact we're even having an immigration debate altogether is extraordinary. The fact that we're even discussing the issue of immigration is a testament to the president's courage and conviction and clarity when it comes to public policy. This is Charlie Kirk, founder of Turning Point USA, host of the Charlie Kirk Show podcast. You can go to Apple Podcasts, press subscribe. It'll help us out in just a minute. We'll be right back talking about Donald Trump's America First immigration plan. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Today, President Trump, he detailed his America First immigration plan. So I'm going to go for this point by point, very meticulously. First and foremost, big cuts in chain migration. This is so important. You should not be able to come to our country just because you know somebody in this country. You should have to have qualifications. You should have to have maybe some form of wealth, ambition, maybe high test scores, you name it. There is very little argument to be said, oh, we should just let people in because they have an aunt or an uncle or a niece or a nephew or a cousin. No. We want people that are proven or have leading indicators to produce in our country. Big cuts in chain migration. Huge win for the America First agenda. Big time. Second, drastic increase in skilled labor. Wow. What a... What a no... What a novel concept to be able to say that we want more people that have skills. Can you code? Can you speak multiple languages? Did you get high test scores? We want more people that have skills. Because when you have those types of skills, you're much less likely to go on government benefits. You're much less likely to commit crime. You're much less likely to drop off and participate in anything in society that is less than desirable. And you're much more likely to get a high-paying job. You're much more likely to start a business. So this, this plan increase, includes a dramatic and drastic increase in skilled labor. And so what kind of skills are these? In engineering, nursing, being a doctor, things that we need in our country, we need more of, that we can't find enough of that work. There are companies that are saying we can't find enough work. Now, some people on the very, very far conservative side of things, and I'm, I'm friends with a lot of these people, admittedly, they say, ah, oh, Charlie, what are you talking about? We need Americans to fill those jobs. Well, look, first of all, there are a lot of people that have been left behind in the American economy that don't have these skills, and we should do more for job training. We should do more to actually teach these skills. But that's not an excuse not to expand the immigration quotas for people that actually have the capacity to fill these jobs now. We as a country, if you believe in market-based forces, you believe when someone comes with ambition and ethics and skill, ambition and ethics and skill, they're going to participate in that economy generally in a positive sense. I want more people like Elon Musk. Elon Musk was a legal immigrant to this country from South Africa, and he has made America a better place. He employs tens of thousands of people. He's made billions of dollars. He's ambitious. He has vision, and he has ethics. The third part of this America First plan was a self-sustained border security trust fund 
from my understanding of this, this is the ability to have some funding mechanism to make sure that the border is always properly funded, that we have a secure border, that we have a wall, and we have some form of a capacity to make sure that the border is not subject to these partisan, silly funding fights. This is long overdue. The border has become such a political issue. The border has become such a contentious partisan issue. The president is looking five, 10, 15, 20 years ahead, saying, how can I fund the border in a way to make sure that the ICE border patrol agents and the construction of the wall, what is needed in the future, can be self-sustainable. He also said there is a Build America visa. Now, what this is, is if you're coming into our country, we will give you a visa if you actually want to build infrastructure and build buildings in our country. It is a America-first immigration plan. And finally, civics exams. This is so important. The president talked about having a civic exam. Do you know our basic founding documents? Do you know our basic ideas? Can you speak English? Having the ability to have a civic exam has been missing in our immigration debate for so long. Let's go to cut three, the president on immigration. Companies are moving offices to other countries because our immigration rules prevent them from retaining highly skilled and even, if I might, totally brilliant people. We discriminate against genius. We discriminate against brilliance. We won't anymore once we get this passed, and we hope to get it passed as soon as possible. Discriminate against genius. That is exactly right. Our current immigration system discriminates against high-qualified people. I have always said I want the Kentucky basketball of immigration policy. What do I mean by that? I want the most qualified, the most ambitious, the most intelligent, the most entrepreneurial people to come to this country. There should not be an inherent discrimination against qualifications when applying to come into America. In just a minute, we'll be back. I'm going to detail this even more. We're going to talk about some of the reaction from the left on this immigration issue. They're finding a reason to oppose it. This is Charlie Kirk, host of The Charlie Kirk Show. You can subscribe by going to Apple Podcast, typing in The Charlie Kirk Show, press subscribe, founder of Turning Point USA, tpusa.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton radio show. I am the founder of Turning Point USA, tpusa.com, the nation's largest student movement dedicated to the education of the next generation behind the ideas of free markets, limited government, American exceptionalism, and the Constitution. We've been talking about immigration this hour. This is an issue that I think is the number one issue heading into the 2020 election. The Democrats have no position on immigration. In fact, Robert Francis O'Rourke, he calls himself Beto O'Rourke. He calls himself Beto O'Rourke, right, Mr. Producer? That's right. That's, that's Mr. Producer there. And he has a position where he was standing overlooking the fence that actually works in El Paso, Texas. It actually works. And Chris Hayes from MSNBC asks him, if you could, would you tear down these walls right now? Actually, might be the toughest question that a Democrat has gotten so far in the 2020 election. And he says, of course, yes, absolutely I would. 
He would tear down the wall with El Paso. The Democrats are put on defense from this issue, and I have to give the president credit by framing the immigration debate. Here's what he's really doing. He's going to work with Mitch McConnell to get this bill into the United States Senate. And he will put every Democrat running for president, which is about half the United States Senate, the Democrat caucus, it seems, on the record against these very reasonable immigration proposals. Cutting chain migration, increasing skilled labor, having a self-sustained border security trust fund, more build America visas, civics exams. Do you believe in that, Senator Gillibrand? Do you believe in that, Senator Booker? Do you believe in that, Senator Klobuchar? Klobuchar? Do you believe in that, Senator Warren? I mean, what senator is not running for president, by the way? We should have a list of every Democrat not running for president. I think it might be uh, Senator Tim Kaine. I think he's not running for president now. Senator Tim Kaine is definitely not running for president. But you go through this list, it is such reasonable immigration policy. And what it really does is it's now going to put Vice President Joe Biden, the heir apparent frontrunner of the Democrat primary, which I've made this prediction, I believe he will not be the Democrat nominee. I believe Joe Biden will not be the Democrat nominee. It now puts him in a very difficult situation. It now puts him in a very tough position. Because now Vice President Joe Biden is now going to have to be against stuff he used to be for. Which is actually seems to be kind of Joe Biden's 2020 slogan. Joe Biden, if I don't support it now, I probably did then. Vote for me. <laughs> I've been on every side of the issue. Or Joe Biden's new slogan, which is, if I said it back then, I might not say it today. What do you think? That's, that's good? I think that's his new slogan. If I'm not for it, I was before. Or something like that. The guy has been on every single issue of every political topic in the American political conversation. He, in 2006, said, we need to build a wall. We need to kick out all the illegals. And now he says we need to give health care for everybody. It, uh, the genius of Trump's immigration plan is to compare it against what I would say more leftist notions. The same notions that the modern progressive left adores. And so he's, he's creating contrast through good policy. So not, is this, not only is this something that should hopefully, God willing, get passed, Nancy Pelosi will not allow this to come in its true form, but this will also, this is the genius of Trump's plan. This will put blue dog, alleged blue dog Democrats like Connor Lamb and these guys that have just taken the House back with Nancy Pelosi in a very tough position because they're going to have to vote against leadership. They're going to have to vote against the, the wishes of the, of the Nancy Pelosi. This is a moderate immigration plan. This is. Now, yes, it has a lot of border security, but you might see uh, some of these ads on, on Fox News being run by Numbers USA. Numbers USA does not believe in this immigration plan. I disagree with Numbers USA on that. I, lo- I, I like a lot of what they do. I agree with them on the illegal immigration. But this is a conversation that I've had with some of our own team uh, you know, at the Charlie Kirk Show, Charlie Kirk Show podcast that you can download on Apple Podcasts. This is a conversation and debate that we have. Should we have more immigration? My stance is absolutely. I want millions and millions of more smart, ambitious, ethical people. Smart, ambitious, ethical people. That's hard to find, though, and it's hard to qualify, isn't it? Because as soon as you say that, you have to curtail chain migration. You have to curtail people that might just know somebody or have some sort of diversity visa lottery. And so the conversation on immigration should be always this. And this is what I love about this president's plan right now. Is it going to help America? Not does it make you feel good. Not is it going to put more people that are disaffected in your country. Is will this policy actually help America? Will this policy benefit the nation state that you're elected to serve? Isn't that a novel concept? To actually ask yourself, will your public policy you're pushing for benefit your constituents? It seems as if 
The Democrats are, will it get me elected? Or will it put me in power? Or will it make me feel good? Or will it get applause at some sort of leftist gathering of ACLU human rights campaign? It'll be very interesting to see which Democrat actually has something nice to say about this, which will probably be none of them. And they'll all vote. My guess is Warren to Klobuchar to all of them will one by one by one vote against this very reasonable immigration proposal and plan. And I do want to reinforce a point I made earlier, which is we are only talking about immigration because of President Trump. Let's play a hypothetical out. Let's say it was President Jeb Bush or President Marco Rubio. Do you think we'd be having this conversation around illegal immigration in this country? Do you think we'd actually be having the conversation around declaring the southern border as a national emergency? I think there's a 0% chance that the traditional Republican Party would actually be addressing illegal immigration. They'd be talking about it from a corporatist lens. What do you think? No, we'd be doing exactly the point you've, you've made time and time again, that we'd be talking about how much we can concede to the Democrats so that we can stay at the cocktail parties as opposed to getting actual immigration It seems like that, that's a trend, isn't it? It seems as if that's exactly right. It's the, the, the traditional Republican Party is this, traditionally. And the, the, Trump has blown this up, blown this up. And most Republicans like Lindsey Graham are no longer like this. I want to qualify this. Most Republicans are no longer like this. But the traditional Republican Party, especially in the early 2000s, is two things. How can I get the Democrats and media to not say bad things about me? And how do I serve corporate interests? How do I not get the Democrats and media not to say bad things about me? And how do I serve corporate interests? How do I stay on CNN? Yeah, exactly. How do I stay on certain cable networks? How do I stay on certain cable networks while also still getting invited to the cocktail parties? How do I blend those two things together? Donald Trump doesn't care about the cocktail parties. The ultimate cocktail party where you go to get loved is the White House Correspondents' Dinner. When you're president, that is, that is the Oscars of being president. Of course, you get made fun of a little bit, but you get that is your show. And President Trump has shown he doesn't care about that. He goes and actually rallies with real Americans. Here's a kind of a fun stat that my executive producer, who you're hearing, uh, hearing some nice chime in, Andrew, told me. Currently, only about 12% of immigrants are admitted based on employment and skills. While 66 are percent, oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. While 66% are admitted based on family connections inside the United States administration. Are you kidding me? This means that 66%, two-thirds, I want you to imagine a pie right now, okay, a physical pie, and two-thirds of that pie, 66% of immigrants, legal immigrants into our country right now, are admitted just based on family ties. That's no way are we getting the best people in the world because of that. Do you know what that also means? That means that we are disenfranchising qualified people from other parts of the world. Because that means qualified people are being put to the back of the line because someone else is here. That means somebody else. So you know what else that means? That means it gives you preference to people that know illegal immigrants. If you know an illegal and that illegal has a child, that child then becomes 15 or 16, you can then use that 15 or 16-year-old daughter of an illegal immigrant to come to this country legally. That's, that's silly. We should be have an immigration policy that is crafted based on merit, based on ambition, and based on ethics. A country should be built on what is best for the nation state, not what makes you feel good. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Radio Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Charlie Kirk filling in for the great Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Radio Show. I am the founder of Turning Point USA. Turning Point USA is the nation's largest student movement dedicated to educating, empowering, and organizing the next generation around the values of free markets limited government, and the Constitution. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit our website at tpusa.com. That is tp 
usa.com. So Andrew, Andrew's here, executive producer of The Charlie Kirk Show. You can go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to The Charlie Kirk Show. We were just talking about immigration, and it seems far too often that the immigration debate in our country gets immediately demagogued. It seems as if the left wants to use it as a way to perpetually have future voters. If the left was serious about actually solving this problem, they would build a wall. As I commonly say, if illegals entering America and their children were likely to vote Republican, the wall would already be built and anyone that would oppose the wall would be a racist. If people coming across the southern border would act, were actually tend to be more conservative, then the left would say, oh, we got to build a wall, we got to restrict. Because you know how we know this to be true? The left does not want actual legal immigration from countries that are far more likely to have Republicans or people to vote Republican. I'll give you a great example. When time and time again, we, are, we try to accept the victims of communism from countries like Venezuela or from Cuba or from Eastern Europe, the Democrats want to put restrictions on that. Democrats time and time again would rather have people that are, are in caravans coming from Guatemala that are living in less than desirable circumstances. Living in less than desirable circumstances are not a reason to be able to come to America. Living in less than desirable circumstances, I have empathy for those people. I have compassion for those people. I actually believe the best way to help those people is to empower their own nation state, to have a free market economy, to have the rule of law, and to have a constitutional republic, free, free expression. And that's the best way to help people in less than desirable circumstances. Not to just say, oh, leave Guatemala, have 25% of Guatemala come to America. What does that mean? That means the 25% that are actually young enough, their young workforce leaves their country, and they have less people, less quali- they have less people at all, and their country is less off today than it was beforehand. And so Donald Trump, to his credit, has kept the national conversation around immigration going for some time now. It is an issue. And I, this is what I love about President Trump. He doesn't care if it's a divisive issue. He doesn't care if it's a difficult issue. He cares if it's an issue that needs to be addressed by the country and for the country. And so the president takes on these difficult issues. The president takes on these issues that he knows are going to spur conversation because he knows it's good for America long-term to actually solve our immigration crisis. We are in pace to have one million people cross the southern border this year. One million people. Think about that. You know, you know, you know, what, you know how many one million people is? That's the entire population of Montana. The state of Montana is illegally crossing into our country every single year. One million people a year, every single year. This is not sustainable. These are people that are not on our books. These are people that are going to be draining the public resources. These are people that are going to be flooding our schools. It's different if you come from a country and you come legally. What, what's the actual distinction of the difference here? When you come legally, you get placed usually in a region or a country or a city that can sustain that kind of immigration or that is in need of that kind of immigration. There was a beautiful documentary done on Frontline, which I know is a PBS thing, but Frontline actually, I think, does. They do a pretty fair job. I love the music, too. I love Frontline. I always have. I think, I think Frontline is one of the great... true. I think they're one of the great documentary kind of providers in the country. Anyway, there was a great... There was a really terrific piece that they did on Ohio. I think it was Dayton, Ohio, where they talked about how... Uh, what's the cash register company that went out? It was a cash register company, went to Atlanta... And I'll look it up. National cash, cash. I think it was called NCR, National Cash Register. 
And they're $4 billion company, left Dayton, Ohio. And the whole city has been grappling with this, and they voted for Trump by 80%. And I kind of love these leftist documentarians that look at Trump voters as, as if they're some sort of zoo animals. And now, looking into the wild, we try to figure out why Cynthia from Ohio actually voted for Donald Trump. Yes, it is NCR, National Cast Register. In 2009, they left Dayton, Ohio, and the city's still trying to grapple with that. Thousands of jobs were lost. Anyway, so you go to Dayton, Ohio, and this was a really cool thing, is that it showed that there was an entire community of Dayton, Ohio, of these unbelievably entrepreneurial people. I think they were Armenian, or they were Turkish or something. They were, they were from that part of the world. Pro- I think it was Armenian. And they came Big with... distinction, but yes. Well, a huge distinction, but <laughs> I, I'm confusing it because Armenia and Turkey has history, so I'm confusing it. You can actually probably look it up on Frontline. I want to be very precise. Try to always be very precise in this. But the whole point is that these, this community came in five, ten years ago with high-skill visas, and they've totally changed Northern Dayton for the better. They own auto dealerships. They have manufacturing plants. It's like this amazing story of legal immigration, and their net, in, their net income for their community is like $80,000, and the whole community loves them. Um, I, can't, I can't remember if it was Armenian or Turkish or it was whatever. It doesn't really matter. Whole point is that that's what we want more of. Dayton, Ohio is now seeing a net benefit from that type of immigration. That was not, by the way, it was not chain migration. It was not family-based migration. It was actually people that came here for the right reasons that have entrepreneurial activity. And you know what? They're all flying American flags over all their businesses. They're talking about how much they love America. Talking about how much they love this country, how appreciative they are of this country. And I find the people that are sometimes most appreciative of this country are first-generation immigrants that came here and fled something and came for a reason. They love America. And the Democrats always make it seem as if we're against these people. They're like, oh, you hate immigrants. No, we don't. We don't hate immigrants. We love immigrants. We love people that come here for the right reasons. We don't want border jumpers or line cutters. We have to change our language when it comes to immigration. Immigration is following the rules. Illegals are border jumpers, and line cutters. Those are not people that have obeyed our protocol and obeyed the set of standards put in front of them. And those standards exist for those standards exist for the nation state. Those standards exist for a very particular reason. Well, it's been a fun couple hours here on the Buck Sexton Radio Show. I want to thank our executive producer here of the Charlie Kirk Show. If you liked what you heard, you can go to the Apple Podcast, type in Charlie Kirk Show and press subscribe. That really helps us out. We have a weekly episode and sometimes even more than that. Again, I'm the founder of Turning Point USA, tpusa.com. It's been such a thrill with you these last couple hours. Please get involved on college campuses. If you have a young person, if you yourself want to get involved in the culture war, we'd love to do it. We believe in free markets, the Constitution, limited government, American exceptionalism. We believe America is the greatest country in the history of the world. That's tpusa.com. Again, that's tpusa.com. Or you could subscribe to the Charlie Kirk Show. We want you to be a subscriber. No charge. Tons of fun. Get involved in the fight. This has been a great couple hours. Hope to see you again soon. In fact, I'm hosting the show again tomorrow. So I'll see you tomorrow. This is Charlie Kirk signing off on the Buck Sexton Radio Show.